welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Graham Pemberton, and on today's episode, we're going to take advantage of the fact that I get to do this, and I'm a pastor, and I get a lot of questions from people in church and in my life asking me questions that, honestly, I don't always know the answer to, or I'm not any kind of a subject matter expert, is the idea of the book of Enoch. Uh, this has come up multiple times for me. Typically, my response is, let's just memorize the Bible first, and then we can think about Enoch. But that doesn't seem to actually carry much weight. So I thought as we're sitting here, we can walk this through with the, uh, the now I know, is, is somewhat of a subject matter expert. I didn't know that before. You've written a collegiate paper on it. So, Ken, what's the deal with the book of Enoch? All right. Well, let's talk about the Book of Enoch. Um, I got interested in this work of literature uh, a long time ago when I was a lot younger than I am now and a lot thinner than I am now. And um, when I started looking at this, part of why I was interested in it was I was aware, as many of our listeners would be, uh, that there is a small, very small section of the Book of First Enoch quoted in the Book of Jude. And at the time, I was studying history and philosophy of religion at Princeton University. And part of what you do in the academic curriculum there is you have to write what's called a junior paper in your fall and spring semester. And then you write a senior thesis your senior year. So I chose to write uh, one of my junior papers on the book of Enoch, first Enoch. And uh, it was about 75 pages long. And as part of my uh, background work on it, I read the book of Enoch in the various languages that you can get it in. Uh, Greek and Hebrew are certainly on that list. Um, there is also uh, some body of literature around the book of First Enoch in what's called Syriac. And there is also um, uh, within the Ethiopian corpus, so, you know, you have to kind of get up to speed to be able to read that stuff. Uh, I've always enjoyed languages, and I don't really have facility with Syriac and Old Ethiopian anymore. But the bottom line is, I, I read this book um, several times as part of, you know, getting that paper together. And the thing that I was trying to understand about the Book of First Enoch, and I'm sure this is where a lot of our readers' interests would go, is does it contain shall we say, secret knowledge, which that very phrasing should immediately put your spidey senses up. But does it contain secret knowledge from way back to the Enoch, the seventh from Adam, uh, who was taken up to heaven? He walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. That's what this book purports to have and to do. And so a lot of people today are really interested in this book. But um, let me just say, this is, not a, this is not a new interest. It's a resurgent interest. And to cut to the chase, I don't believe that the book of Enoch warrants the kind of attention that people are giving it right now. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The most important of which is it was not written by Enoch. Through, due to manuscript evidence, due to linguistic evidence that is embedded within the text of the book, 
And when I say Enoch here, I am always referring to the book of First Enoch. Actually, within the Enoch corpus, there is also a second, third, and fourth Enoch, and each of them becomes a little bit more specious than the one with the next lower number. Uh, but the book of First Enoch, generally just called the book of Enoch, uh, purports to be the uh, writings and musings of the Enoch going back to the time before the Genesis flood. Um, Enoch died just shortly before uh, Noah went into the ark. It's likely that Noah and Enoch would have known each other if you just lay out the genealogy. Uh, they probably had some sort of you know, discussions um, because there was a few years in which they were both alive. And so the, the story goes, and, I, and I, I emphasize it that way, uh, or the narrative, as we say nowadays in modern, modern English, uh, the narrative goes that Enoch would have imparted all of this secret knowledge from before the fall to Noah and handed him scrolls, which had all of this stuff written down. And then after the flood, Noah transmitted all of that information uh, to his descendants, and it ultimately passed into the families of of Abraham and from there into the families of the Jews. And so, you know, the book of the book of Enoch is this incredibly valuable treasure trove of knowledge from before the fall. All right, that's that's the assertion. Um, the book of first Enoch was written about 200 BC. Now in modern scholarship, we're supposed to say BCE for before the common era rather than BC, meaning before Christ. Um, that that's a newer convention. Uh, and it's really come about in my lifetime. I can remember when scholarly literature was still all dated BC and AD, AD standing for Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Uh, now it's uh, BCE before the common era and CE the common era. Uh, the book of first Enoch is written about 200 BCE or BC, take it the way you want it. Um, and it is a pseudepigraphic work. Now, when we use that word, what does that mean? Um, there's canon, which is the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament that we call the Holy Bible. And this is the, these books, everybody in the Christian church agrees are canonical and to be accepted as the rule of faith. Um, the Jews, of course, would not accept the New Testament books, but they would accept all of the 39 books of what we call the Old Testament. So there's also congruence between the Jewish and the uh, Christian community on the books of the Old Covenant, also known as the Old Testament. Um, at the time of the Reformation, which occurred in 1517, or uh, what, 507 years ago, at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he did not like the books that were called the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha, that word itself means the origins are somewhat clouded. They're, uh, they're suspicious. And uh, they may or may not be what they purport to be. And there are several books in the Apocrypha that are included within the Catholic Bible, the Catholic Bible, but not in the Protestant Bible. All of them are uh, purported to fall within the intertestamental period. That's to say between the closing of the book of Malachi, approximately 400 BC, or BCE, if you like the newer convention, and the beginning of the Christian era, uh, approximately zero or plus one AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Again, if you like the newer convention, this would be called CE. <clears throat> so we've got about four centuries there 
um, that there was no truly canonical inscripturated teaching coming forth. And this was consistent with what the Lord had said, that there would come a day where, um, where the word of the Lord would be scarce and darkness would fall over the prophets. And so there was no canonical prophecy coming forward. And of course, the Torah had been closed in the time of Moses, roughly uh, to, to 14, uh, 1450 BC, 1446 to be exact, but 1450 in round numbers. And so uh, we have the books of history that follow all that. We have the literature of, of wisdom, books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. Um, and then we get into the prophetic literature. But during that intertestamental period between roughly 400 BC and the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, um, there continues to be this other body of literature which is coming forth known as the Apocrypha. And it includes books with names like 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Esdras, uh, the books of the Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 4th Maccabees, uh, the book of Jubilees, uh, there, there are some others in there. And these books, again, are accepted as scripture within the Catholic Church, and they, they have some value to them, if for no other reason than they cover some of the history of the intertestamental period. And for the most part, they're fairly reliable uh, from a historical standpoint. We could debate whether they are inspired in the sense that the canonical books are inspired, but um, but I can tell you, having read all of that material, if you simply read the canonical books next to the apocryphal books, you'll notice that there is some difference in, I don't know what to call it, that what you feel or the level of impact or the level of, I don't know, uh, there's just something about it. It's not quite the same. So it's always been understood that even though the apocrypha was included in the Catholic Bible, um, it was never viewed as being as significant or reliable or important or trustworthy as the books of the Old Testament and later the New Testament. Yeah, so, I mean, so Martin Luther just decided to X those out right. of, of the, yeah. And okay. I know that he, he really wanted to X out James as well is uh he did but he didn't so he wanted to but he didn't that see yeah so what was his rationale um and who was over that and like was there a council or well uh the the removal of the apocrypha from the uh pages of what we would call the old testament um uh, that happened not so much due to luther but due to some of the church councils that were called by the Protestants in the years after Luther's writings. Remember, John Calvin comes along late in the 1500s. He's the primary voice of Reformation into the early 1600s. There are other people who were significant Reformation voices through the 1500s. Uh, Luther had a friend named Philip of Melanchthon. He was, a, he was a major biblical translator, understood the manuscripts, the languages. Uh, there were several others. I could sit here and name names, but for most of our listeners, they wouldn't mean anything. But the bottom line is, from Luther to Calvin, uh, there's there's an you know there's an evolution, as you might expect, in thought, uh, in what we're going to accept, how we're going to handle these things going forward. And by the time of the um, the Reformed 
councils, things like the Synod of Dort and others, uh, effectively what Luther wanted to see happen with respect to the Apocrypha did occur and Protestants de basically delisted them and stopped using those books because they were not uh, viewed as uh, significant and their history was somewhat clouded. This is again, the meaning of the word Apocrypha. And so in the end, the Protestants said, no, we only wanna go with the books that are unquestionably canon and that were received by the ancient rabbinical councils and the Jews. I, by the way, just a side note here, on previous shows, we've had some uh, leading voices of Jewish Christianity or Messianic Judaism uh, in the past on this podcast. And, um, it, you know, it's interesting to me that, uh, <laughs> that let's just say John Calvin and Martin Luther, if you read what they wrote, a lot of times they come across very, very anti-Semitic. Uh, maybe not uniformly, but, but certainly there's enough of it there that it's hard to miss it. And it's interesting that notwithstanding that anti-Semitic thread that runs through what they said and wrote, um, they were willing to go back to the Jewish rabbis and councils and say, look, they didn't accept this stuff, so why should we be doing it now? And it just goes to show the importance of the Old Testament in the thinking of the primary leaders of the Reformation 500 years ago. They, they understood the Old Testament was the word of God, and they didn't want it mingled with something of lesser quality. Any further questions? Yeah, okay. That? I've got a lot, but I'll save them. All right. So let's get to Enoch. So we've got the A tier stuff, and this is all canonical grade stuff. It's the 39 books of the Old Testament. Then we've got the books of the Apocrypha. And if, if anybody wants to read these, they're pretty readily available. Um, there's a there's one Bible that I like to recommend when people want to go studying these things called the Orthodox Study Bible. And it's referring to Eastern Orthodoxy. And the Orthodox also use the books of the, of the Apocrypha. And the translation there is fairly good. So if you wanted to read these books for edification, you could do it there. There's also, interestingly, um, a copy of the Apocrypha available in the revised standard version of the Bible. Most evangelicals don't read the Revised Standard Version anymore. Um, in fact, I've often joked that it's really now called the Reviled Slandered Version. But the RSV was, for a period of time, the go-to translation of mainstream Protestant orthodoxy um, across the United States into uh, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, only very uh, liberal churches, for the most part, are using it these days. But it remains actually a very scholarly and very good translation of the Bible. I don't recommend it for those that are familiar with the translations I do recommend, because the RSV, as it is now being promulgated, has had a great deal of revisionism done to it in the name of eliminating any distinctions between men and women within the pages of the text. And with that, I think there are places where the underlying meaning is somehow compromised. And so um, rather than people running the risk of buying a more re recent version of the RSV and getting one that is not actually reliable, uh, I just don't recommend it because most people aren't, they aren't discriminating enough. They don't wanna do that level of um, thoughtful assessment as they're buying a Bible. But if you can get an older copy of the RSV um, I actually really like it a lot. It was it was trying to update the King James, 
and they did a very good job with it. Um, and I was actually fortunate enough at one time in my life to study with the lead translator of the RSV Bible, and I learned a lot about Bible translation from him. Um, anyway, so we've got the RSV comes along, along with this thing called the Orthodox Study Bible. There are other translations of the Apocrypha, and they may be more or less beneficial. But anyway, those two translations, if you're going to read it, those would be ones that I'd, I'd be willing to say, you know, use those. So um, we've got the A tier, which is the canonical books, the 39 books of the Old Testament. We've got the B tier, which are the apocryphal books. But then we've got the C tier, which are the pseudepigraphic books. And pseudo, we all know what pseudonym means. Pseudonym means a false name. Pseudepigraphic means this was written under a, under a false pretense of writing. And one of the key things that makes the book of First Enoch pseudepigraphic and therefore C quality is that it purports to be written by Enoch, and it wasn't. It was written about 200 BC, or BCE, if you like that convention, but about 200 years before Christ, um, under the guise of being the secret revealed writings of Enoch. And the writing style, as well as the script style of the most ancient manuscripts of, the, of First Enoch show us without much question that it originated in the third century BC, maybe the second century BC. Well, with that, there's no reason that you should accept it as canon. I mean, period, full stop, carriage return, new paragraph, new chapter, maybe even new book. Uh, but people continually want to come back to Enoch and make it equal to the scripture. So a couple, couple questions about that. Um, can you speak to why it's definitively not from Enoch and the fact that it was found within the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Um, why is it definitively not from Enoch? Uh, because Enoch died before the Genesis flood. And depending on how you date the uh, archaeology of the Bible, the Genesis flood was possibly 2000, maybe 3000, maybe 4000 BC. But it, it's, it, I mean, we're talking about thousands of years of gap. Enoch was not alive when the book of first Enoch came into being. He could not have written it. He was up in heaven. You know, we could say he's dead, but he wasn't actually dead. He went up to heaven. And so it, it, it's specious. And one of the things we have to understand about scripture is the, the word of God itself says in, in the book of Psalms, the law of the Lord is pure, enlightening the simple, and it enlightens the eyes as well. And there is no break. There is no, there's nothing misstated. There's no lie within the word of God. So to say that the book of first Enoch is scripture would be to say that it, that this, that this huge masquerade of trying to make it appear to be written by Enoch, the Enoch, um, this would be this would be to say that the scripture itself contains um, an intentional deception, and God doesn't function that way. God God is light; in Him there is no darkness at all, and so this would be to impugn the very character of God. I mean, that's that's probably the strongest argument I can make as to why we shouldn't accept. Uh, the book of first Enoch, but also remember the ancient rabbinical councils, none of them accepted the book of first Enoch 
as scripture. It continued to be read widely. It continued to be copied and distributed, but that doesn't mean it was scripture. It just means that people were reading it. And so the analogy that I like to use, and this goes right to your question about the Dead Sea Scrolls, is um, I don't remember now exactly even when it was, but wow, probably uh, 25 or 30 years ago, and maybe even a little further back than that, maybe in the, maybe in the 19, 1980s, so this might be pushing 40 years ago, a guy named Frank Peretti wrote a book called This Present Darkness. And then he wrote a sequel to it called Piercing the Darkness. And these were runaway bestsellers within the Christian community. Everybody was reading them. I read them. I read them multiple times. And what these books did more than anything was open people's eyes to the reality of the spirit realm and that there might actually be angels and demons that are engaged in conflict and combat. And so uh, one of the protagonists in that book is an archangel named Tal. And it appears that T-A-L, Tal is probably uh, maybe a pseudonym for, if not Michael, then maybe Gabriel or Uriel uh, or uh, Raphael. These are the four archangels that, that come out of, by the way, the Apocrypha. Uh, two of them are named in the, in the canonical scriptures. Two of them are only found in the Apocrypha. And so um, anyway, everybody I knew was reading these books and we were all like, wow, that's right. And, you know, the angels are fighting with the demons and, you know, it would talk about how the demons would lie in wait and, you know, they could change shapes. And I mean, you can find these books online today if you wanted to read them and understand what they're about. But the bottom line and the reason I'm using this illustration is that as good as they were and as much as they excited our faith and caused us to burn hot for Jesus, this present darkness and piercing the darkness were not scripture. They were Christian fiction of a particular kind that inspired a certain kind of dedication. Praise God for all of that, but they're not scripture. And so if you look at that and you understand that, the book of First Enoch would be somewhat analogous to this present darkness and its sequel, Piercing the Darkness. And just so, the book of First Enoch is not scripture, but it was popular and widely read. And so during those years, I can remember listening to Bible teachers say, well, you know, just the way it says in this present darkness, you know, the angels are, you know, watching over and, you know, Tal goes to battle against, I can't remember the names of all the demons, but, you know, and he draws his sword and they, people would make this into sermon illustrations. Well, that's kind of what Jude is doing in this passage that everyone is quoting in Jude, verse 14 and following, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones, meaning his angels, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So Jude is referencing a book, a work that was widely known in the time of Jesus, and the Essene community obviously knew about it. That's why they found copies of the scroll of Enoch within the Essene corpus. But listen, there were a lot of other books found in the Essene corpus, which are not in the scriptures also. 
they were they were books that were valued by the Essenes. They helped frame their own view of the world, uh, the end times, etc. And so, you know, those books those books were very important to them, and they framed their spirituality. But they were also quite clear among the Essenes uh, what was scripture. For example, the book of Isaiah, the book of Habakkuk, the book of Leviticus. I mean, they found copies of these and many others. They knew that these were the scriptures and these others were not. They were that deuterocanonical, that's the other word for pseudepigraphic, deutero meaning secondary and canonical meaning canonical. So these are secondary canonical books. They don't have the weight. They don't have the force. They're not useful for uh, making doctrine and correcting error, but they may give you some insight into the way people thought in terms of their worldview, their mindset, how they viewed the world, what was going to come. And so there is value in reading these books from that standpoint, but there is no value in reading these books from the standpoint of making doctrine because we only make doctrine from the books of the canon. By the way, you asked earlier, one of the reasons, uh, you asked why did Luther not accept these deuterocanonical books? And one of the reasons he didn't like them is because some of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church which he objected to, things like purgatory, things like indulgences where you paid money in order to see your departed relatives released from purgatory. These things come out of the deuterocanonical books known as the Apocrypha. And so Luther was like, these are all beyond scripture. And so those books should be taken out lest they lead the faithful astray. And this is actually one of my big concerns with all of this hoopla about the book of Enoch in our present time is that people are wanting to make it scripture and in so doing they're starting to teach things from pulpits as though it is true and in the end the faithful are being led astray and in my opinion the book of first Enoch is fueling a lot of this huge rise in Gnosticism which we've discussed previously on this podcast in our current time. And so I think one of the best things we could do at this time would be to, well, I don't think we want to stamp it out, but we want to be very careful to tell people, if you're going to read this, read it so you understand how people thought about things back then, but understand this is not scripture and you don't make doctrine from it. And so anything you may have heard that's based on Enoch on YouTube or anywhere else that you may have run across it from some traveling teacher, if you hear somebody refer to Enoch in that way, you should just turn it off. And the fact that Jude happens to be referring to, you know, four or five verses of the book of First Enoch in his book, the fact that a canonical work is citing a non-canonical work does not thereby make the non-canonical work canonical. Here's an example. When Paul is on Mars Hill in Athens, he cites some of the Greek poets and he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Well, he's using the literature of the day He's using the mindset of the Greeks to try to persuade them that the God that we serve is an all-powerful, all-encompassing God, and we do live and move and have our being in him. But that's not the same thing as saying that what some Greek poet, a pagan Greek poet, wrote is therefore equivalent to scripture. It's simply a, a sermon illustration, and that's what we see going on in the book of Jude. Okay, so just to summarize a bit. The reason you and other scholars believe it to not be original from Enoch is because 
archaeologically and linguistically, it doesn't match the time period correct. from whence Enoch came. That's correct. Okay. And so you can tell like by the linguistics and how it's how it speaks that it's not as ancient as maybe the Exodus narrative or whatever. That's exactly correct. That so right? Just a simple example. Yes, you're exactly correct. Just a simple example that everybody would immediately get. Uh, if I were to be speaking on this podcast and say, oh, Grant, thou art, yea, verily, a handsome fellow, and I can see by thine, by thine beard that thou hast been, uh, you know, many days without the razor. This is reminiscent of Elizabethan English. It's somehow 16th century, maybe 17th century English, and everybody would immediately know it, and they'd go, what do you want about, Ken? Nobody talks that way nowadays, precisely. Um, if I were to say, hey, Grant, look at that beard. That's, that's a pretty cool hipster beard. That's the way we talk about it now. People would go, oh, yeah, he's speaking modern English and talking about Grant's beard. <clears throat> so the book of First Enoch is articulating in that, oh, look at Grant's beard. It's a hipster beard. Rather than, yea, verily, Grant, and forsooth, thou art a fellow who hast many days without a razor upon thy head. You know, that kind of talk. That If it had that sort of cast to it, that would be from a much more ancient time in the evolution of the Hebrew language and the other languages that Enoch got transmitted into. It doesn't have that kind of tone to it. It doesn't have that kind of cadence to it. And therefore, we know, because of studying literature from about 200 BC, we know about when that book was written. No, that's great. And so I think with that, along with the idea... Ezra and Nehemiah, they weren't reading these things amongst the temple at the time. It was not in the ancient, you know, in Solomon's courts and in his temples being read and espoused and all of that stuff, right? So we know both of those two facts, which then leads to us to say, sounds like a cool little book, definitely isn't canon. And, um, and so I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of secret knowledge. You referenced that, um, and I know where that reference is coming from, but it is fueling a lot of, I think, the interest in Enoch. And I've actually read books that are great books um, by authors and teachers and, and things like that that really reference Enoch a lot. And it seems like they're getting a lot of their there's stuff from Enoch, which, I mean, honestly, that was kind of the first time I thought, well, maybe there's something to this thing. I respect this guy. And, you know, he's using this a lot. Maybe I should look into it. I just never did. Um, but uh, it, it, anyway, I think um, this idea of secret knowledge is just would be something to be touched on. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, one of the most ancient heresies in the Christian church um, is the heresy of Gnosticism. And there's a lot of faces to Gnosticism. Again, we've done some podcasts on this in the past, so I would refer our uh, listeners to that. Um, I also have a teaching available through the Orbis Ministries website um, called The New Gnosticism, and people could get that teaching and listen to it. But the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, or gnosis, as it's usually said but it's G-N-O-S-I-S. -S. And gnosis refers to knowledge. 
And Gnosticism in its, in its core, its very nature, uh, tries to bring people to that secret knowledge, that knowledge that isn't available to everybody. You have to go find it. And if you find that secret knowledge, you become a superior class of Christian. And so um, there are many people who are engaging in Gnostic type teachings today. There are a lot of characteristics of Gnosticism. One of them is, well, it's, these are actually polar opposites, but they are still both of them Gnostic. One of them is that you can indulge the flesh as much as you want, because in fact, um, you know, everything is covered by the blood of Jesus. And so we don't need to worry about if we indulge the flesh. This is really the lawless end of Gnosticism. Uh, the other end of the spectrum is the highly ascetic, deny yourself everything, don't get married, no sex, uh, you know, no eating of meats, all these kinds of things like that. And, and there are more besides, and all of this is designed to bring you to a higher state of purification and with it, the ability to receive the hidden secret knowledge. Much of Gnostic teaching uh, relies on the idea that we are going to ascend into some higher level of the heavens. Today, we talk about the second and third heavens, but in the, in the classical Nostran, Gnostic teachings from teachers like Serinthus and others in the third and fourth centuries, there were many, many levels of this, more than just two or three. So this idea of second and third heaven is a really watered down version of that. Uh, but anyway, um, so the idea was that we were going to ascend through the heavens, and in that we would merge into the aeon, A-E-O-N. And so the aeon becomes the goal of what we want. And this is really very similar to the concept of pantheism that we find in a lot of the Eastern religions, that everything is God and God is everything. And so Gnosticism becomes kind of a middle ground between the, pan uh, the pantheistic teachings of the East and the very historical and grounded teachings of Judaism and later of Christianity. I mean, this is really the, uh, the thing that marks Christianity and before it, Judaism, from a lot of the religions around them in the ancient world, uh, because many of those ancient religions rely on legends or myths. Paul calls them uh, fables when he says that Titus should command people not to teach these things. Uh, these, things are, these things are intentionally uh, drawing people into this idea that they need to go higher and they can only do it if they attain the secret knowledge. And so with it, there was a whole movement within the ancient church for you know, the first maybe four or 500 years of people who were questing after all of that secret knowledge, that hidden knowledge. And we find various shades of it. That, you know, just as I said, there's a, a New Test or an Old Testament apo uh, apocrypha and pseudepigrapha. There is also a New Testament apocrypha and pseudepigrapha. And much of the teaching that comes out of those, things like the Acts of Paul and Thecla, or the, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, or the Apocalypse of John. There's a whole body of this literature. And you know, I studied all this stuff in some depth uh, when I was at Princeton. All of this literature has within it this idea of secret knowledge that if people can just attain to it and learn how to use the secret you know, words and passwords and everything, they will be liberated from the bondage of this earth and will be freed to rise and ascend into the aeon. That's, that's underneath all of this. And so um, anything that has that kind of smell to it, this idea of the secret knowledge, anything that is 
necessary beyond the knowledge of Jesus Christ, beyond belief in his sacrifice for us, anything that has that in it is automatically suspect. Depending on how it's being taught, what's being taught, it may be more or less dangerous, more or less heterodox, possibly, but not always uh, heretical. But, but there's something about it, you go, this isn't quite right. Why do we need to be doing this anyway? It is not the sacrifice of Christ enough? And so we see this kind of language in the New Testament that there remains no further sacrifice to be made. And we see the kind of language that, uh, you know, we don't have to go questing after this kind of knowledge. Paul seems particularly acute to, uh, to go after this in the book of Colossians and secondarily in Ephesians. He says, you know, that, that we're all joined to the head in Christ. We've already been joined. We don't need to ascend, and we certainly aren't looking for the aeon. Uh, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And within the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a historicity. And this is why the creeds come about. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in the seen and the unseen and, you know, just sort of goes on. But then, and we believe in, in one Lord Jesus Christ, eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made for us men and our salvation. And that includes women, by the way, but that's the way the creed originally reads. And it's the way I memorized it. For us men and our salvation, he came down from heaven. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. For our sakes, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures, and he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. There's a historicity. There's a tying down to actual events that occurred in space and time. And so much of the Gnostic narrative is ahistorical. It's all spiritual. It's all up there. And it's always, you know, there's like there's this whole churn that's going on, and we're trying to join into it. And one of my big concerns within the modern charismatic community is that there is a growing trend line of people who are moving toward this kind of thinking. And I could name specific teachers, but, you know, we don't generally call people out on this show but I could name specific teachers who are traveling the world teaching that you need this special knowledge in order to come into the place of God, in order to find liberation from all of the evils and the, we could call them thetans if we were Scientologists. If you ever saw the movie, The Green Mile, and at the end where the guy opens his mouth and all these little beads or something come out of his mouth, the green green mile or green line what is it just about a guy in prison he's about to be executed i mean all of this carries that idea of there's something within us longing to be liberated and if we could just find the secrets if we can just find the password then our soul can be liberated to ascend to the aeon and the the, the historic message of christianity is completely different from that it's you are dead in your trespasses and sins if you believe in jesus christ you will be given new life again. The kingdom of God will come to you. You can begin eternal life now. And when death finally takes your mortal body, your spirit will live on and you will take, ultimately have a new body in which you will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth, which God is going to create. There's no sense of ascending or having to have all these secret 
passwords and so forth. And I would bet that two thirds or more of our listeners have heard Gnostic teaching again on YouTube or whoever their favorite teacher is uh, just, just maybe in the last week or two, because it's everywhere in modern charismatic Christianity. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's a thin line uh, potentially from like relevatory prophetic teaching to secret mystery knowledge stuff. And so I understand the slip slope of that. And I think that's why a lot of our, um, you know, reform friends would be like, let's stay away from all of that. And there's some merit uh, to that for sure. Um, I just want to circle back before we get too far down any other rabbit holes to the, uh, the point of the Dead Sea Scrolls and it being, it being in there um, and if does that bring any additional weight uh, to this topic that might cause someone else to think a little bit harder about this than like, I don't know, the Book of the Giants or the Apocrypha? Well, um, again, when I was at Princeton, I read all of the Dead Sea Scrolls corpus that was available at that time. Since then, there have been a few of them which were known but hadn't they couldn't translate them. They couldn't, they couldn't unroll them so that they could translate them. They were too brittle, too fragile. Uh, just a few years ago, maybe it was 2017 or 18, <clears throat> using the technology of computerized tomography, from which we get the, the language of CAT scans or CT scans, um, they had one scroll. They didn't know what to do with it. It was very badly burned. And when they had found it, um, they had immediately placed it in dry nitrogen uh, to prevent it from decaying and crumbling to dust. And it had been on hold in dry nitrogen since the discovery of the scrolls in 48, 1948, uh, until they did this uh, CT reading of it. And, and as I remember, I think they did this just on the front end of COVID. So maybe it was like 2019. But anyway, they took this, this CT scanning machine and they began to take thin sections of the scroll and they did, you know, they did pictures of it and then they digitally unrolled the scroll they, without ever physically unrolling it. And they could lay out the pieces. And even though it was very badly burned, the ink you know, was a different color, slightly different in shade to the black background of the burned vellum uh, that was charred from the fire that had caused that whenever centuries ago. And so they could actually read the text that was there and they laid it out end to end. And when they did, they found out that this was the book of Leviticus. And uh, well, prior to that time, they'd not been able to, to read that scroll. So when I was studying the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1980s, um, there were some of those scrolls that were not yet legible, even though they had been recovered. Then there were some other scrolls that have since been discovered in caves in the Qumran area and they're furiously scouting for more now. And there's quite a few caves in that area. If anyone were to go on an Israel tour with me, you know, we can point out a lot of the caves. The Roman army did not bother to go into all those caves when they came through. They found the Qumran settlement. They killed everybody in the settlement. They burned everything that was there and they moved on because their real objective was to get to Masada, which is a little bit south of there, uh, because that's where the last holdout of the Jewish resistance was that was located during the time of the Jewish war. And so um, 
Qumran was left as a smoking ruin, and it was just a monastic community. There were, there were no reinforcements. There were no soldiers. There were no swords or anything like that to, to resist the 10th Legion. Um, but the, the, the Qumran residents saw what was coming. They saw the army coming. And so they had stashed their sacred scrolls that were so important to them in jars in all these caves around Qumran so they would be safely out of the way when the end came. And then they faced their fate at the hands of the 10th Roman Legion. And by the way, all of this is recorded in Josephus's uh, Annals of the Jews. Um, I've read Josephus many times in the past, not as much of late, but, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm familiar with Josephus's writings. And uh, Josephus was a very capable historian. Some people don't like him because he ultimately turned sides and went over to the Romans, uh, but it was really to save his own life. And with that, he was chronicling all the things that the Romans did in the Jewish war. And so uh, we have very good records from Josephus of what all went on. Well, back to Qumran. So the, the Qumran residents had stored or stashed their scrolls away. Uh, and not all of them were discovered in 1948. There, there have been some in just the last couple of years that have been discovered. And so we don't know how many there may yet to be found. Back when I was studying all this, I, I read everything more than once that was available at that time. Um, and by that, I mean it had been both discovered and able to be rendered into uh, whether Hebrew, uh, modern Hebrew uh, or into English. And uh, the stuff that wasn't legible, like that book of Leviticus, well, it just was sitting there. No one really quite knew what it was at that point. So I'm pretty familiar with the story of Qumran and the writings of the Qumran uh, leaders. And there are many, many uh, documents within the Qumran community that, that are not scripture, but they, again, regulated the life of how those people lived their spirituality. Um, and so with that, we can understand a lot about the spirituality and the lifestyle and the daily practices of the Qumran community. I wouldn't, for that reason, take everything that was discovered in the Qumran corpus and say that it was the same as scripture. And a, an analogy to that would be if we were to take a monastery somewhere and uh, let's say we were to discover a bunch of ancient writings, I don't know, buried behind a, a wall, you know, hidden behind a stone or something or a cellar maybe where they put all these scrolls and whatnot. Well, some of that would, would be the word of God. It would be scripture. And some of it would just be the commentaries or the, the, the rule of faith that they were living by. A really good example of this would be if we were to go to uh, the, the monastery of Monte Cassino in Italy. This is where St. Benedict first established the Benedictine order in the fifth century. And the Benedictines are still going on today. Uh, by the way, Monte Cassino was was still intact at the Second World War, but unfortunately, uh, some of the Axis soldiers decided to take uh, residence there or take shelter there from the Allied armies, and Monte Cassino was destroyed due to bombardment and has never been rebuilt, at least not in the last roughly 80 years since the war ended. But if you were to look among the ruins of Monte Cassino, uh, maybe after some of those conflicts and battles, and you were to find manuscripts of the Bible, but also a book that St. Benedict himself wrote called The Rule. These days it's known as The Rule of St. Benedict, but he was not enough of a, of a self-impressed guy 
to name it the rule of St. Benedict. He simply called it the rule. Um, you would see this is how the Benedictine order set their days. This is when they prayed. This is how they divided themselves in order to uh, carry out kitchen duty. Uh, this is who worked in the garden. This is how they drew lots for who was going to do what. That's not scripture, but it gives you a great deal of insight into how the Benedictines live. Similarly, there is documents of that sort that were found within the Qumran community that give us a great deal of understanding of who those people were, how they lived, what they believed. And actually, when you study the life of the people in Qumran, um, they're very, I mean, it's very likely, in fact, nearly certain that this is where John the Baptist was living in the desert, as the Bible tells us, until the time of his appearing. He was probably deeply influenced by their spirituality, their beliefs about the end times, and the, the Essenes had withdrawn to Qumran to escape the corruption and the worldliness, uh, the carnality of what Judaism had come to be in Jerusalem. And so they fled and they lived there in a monastic style. And John picked up a lot of that. And, and you know, very possibly Jesus was there. We don't actually know that. It's, it's far more likely that John was there than that Jesus was there. But it's very possible Jesus may have been. And so when we talk about the worldview of John the Baptist, when we talk about the worldview of Jesus Christ, and we talk about how you know there are echoes and refrains of Enoch in what they say, it's very possible that they were reading Enoch just the way, as I said, you know, 40 years ago or 35 years ago or whenever it was, myself and all of my friends, we were all reading Frank Peretti's books. That doesn't mean that Frank Peretti's books were scripture. It simply meant that they provided a valuable lens and we were pretty excited about them. And so for a period of time, we were very, very engaged with that literature. Yeah, I think that's good. That's thorough. So what should we do with it? Well, as I said, if somebody has a mind to read the book of First Enoch to understand the worldview, the cosmology of the uh, people who lived about 200 BC, um, who wrote it. Um, I think there's value in that historically. A lot of people in the church today are not particularly historians and particularly not from something that's 2,200 years ago. So I don't know what level of interest there would be. Now, if people think there's some secret knowledge that's going to get them free of whatever it is that ails them or makes them crazy or makes them anxious or neurotic, uh, then they might have a higher level of interest because they think if I read this, it'll be my key to liberation. Well, right there, that exact way of thinking is, in fact, Gnostic. So um, I think what we should do with First Enoch is... I think we should treat it reverentially. It's a historical document. It reflects the beliefs and piety of a people who went before us as members of the body of, well, not of Christ, but the body of believers uh, stretching back to the time of the patriarchs. Um, I think we can learn something of how people thought about things. And with that, we might gain some insights into certain little phrasings and whatnot that we find in the scriptures. And by that, I mean, particularly the New Testament scriptures, we could read those things and go, oh, yeah, that's right. They were thinking about it that way back then. And this idea that the Lord will come with 10,000s of his holy ones that we read out of Jude. Oh, the idea of the Lord returning and with a with an army of angels. Oh, yeah. Enoch was talking about that. So that was there was this apocalyptic expectation. 
oh, wow, okay. And so that kind of explains why there was this apocalyptic ferment when John the Baptist was preaching. And he said, after me comes one who is more powerful than I am, the, the, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Or when Jesus would talk about the coming of you know, his own return. Or when Paul is writing in 2 Thessalonians about the Lord will come with the voice of the trumpet or the trumpet sound and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are still left on the earth will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord there. When we read that kind of language, we can say, aha, uh -huh, that's what's the backdrop. That's what they're thinking about. That's what they believed in that day. It helps us to understand where does that come from, and it helps flesh out maybe what Paul meant with some of his language that isn't fully and completely clear from the language of the text of, in this case, Second Thessalonians. And so it gives us somewhere to go to try to understand in context what might he have been trying to say. It's not to make Enoch scripture. It's simply to say it's an interpretive tool. And I think there's value in that, but many people would not want to do that sort of thing. It's too much work for them. They're too busy. They're not really scholarly in that way. That's fine. All they need is a good study Bible or a one volume Bible commentary. And those can be had um, and just look up those passages and see whatever the commentator has said. And that'll give them enough to keep them running for, for the foreseeable future. On the other hand, if some people get really down the rabbit hole with it, I mean, well, you could spend an entire career studying the book of First Enoch if you wanted to, uh, but most of us won't do that. And so at some point, you just shut it off after you've satisfied yourself what's in there and, you know, if you happen to like it. No, I think that's good. And I think uh, this has been a, a good talk. And I foresee other talks like this in our future. Um, but that's not with secret knowledge. That's just my gut. So I think we can, uh, we can wrap this one and I will, uh, I'm looking forward to some more uh, questions from a pastor and, uh, and we can do some more of those things. I think that'll be fun. Yep. Well, uh, there, you know, this is a deep well. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a whole domain of knowledge that deals with scripture, biblical interpretation, what is canon, uh, you know, the, the beliefs of the times, all of that and more. And, and this is a fertile area for inquiry and study. Um, this is why people sometimes become seminary professors or, you know, they go back to school and they get a degree because they want to learn more about these things. Um, at one time, that was part of what was motivating me. It wasn't the only thing motivating me, but it was one of them because I found that when I would ask questions about issues like this, most of the pastors I knew didn't have a clue of how to answer that. And sometimes they didn't even know. They're like, what's an Enoch? <laughs> so it's like, well, we're not going to get anywhere with that. And so I went and educated myself. Again, there were some other things motivating me beyond all that, but certainly this was in it. And so um, hopefully by doing podcasts like this, we're able to educate those who have an interest <clears throat> and in a way that is, um, I want to say, constructive to the faith, not destructive to the faith. A lot of times people start going down these rabbit holes and they come to conclusions that are ultimately, uh, they will cause people to deconstruct. They will cause people to fall away. They will cause people to come to false conclusions. 
and they shouldn't even be falling away because what they're coming to is their conclusion isn't even right. But there's always something of that risk. And so I think there's a healthy and faith-filled way of examining these books and this kind of literature that will uh, strengthen the saints rather than tearing down their faith. And with it, they'll be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within them. All right. Well, Ken, that's a great place to land. And uh, we thank you for taking time. Thank you all for listening. And we'll be right back here next week. We've recently updated the Orbis Ministries app with Ken's free teaching archive. You can click on the link in the description of this podcast to download today.